Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Colin Thompson. Colin is the owner and co-director of Dornock Castle Hotel on the northeast coast of Scotland. Colin, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Scott. Nice to speak to you. Likewise, Colin, real pleasure having you join us on the air. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on leadership. And I think it is fair to say, isn't it, that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the impact that that has had on businesses, communities, organisations, the world over, let alone the UK. Um, Of course, working in the hospitality industry yourself, which has been subject to the lockdown, how has it been navigating the last few months? I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge. Uh, yeah, Scott, it, it's been an interesting time. And, and, uh, our take on it was that we were aware of it very, very early on. Um, like like everyone else, we had feedback from, from uh, China. But my son's um, own Dornock Distillery, which uh, uh, operates out the garden of, of Dornock mm. Castle, and they were um, invited to go to Taiwan and Japan um, to, to do some whiskey tastings in, in uh, February. And so we got a very intimate feedback, particularly from Taiwan, as to, as to how they were dealing with it over there. And, and uh, you know, so the phone calls are coming backwards and forwards. And, and uh, you know, look, this is deadly serious. We need to be really, you know, very, very careful how we proceed with this. And, and um, so we started at the early stage back in February, thinking there's going to be lockdowns and so on and so forth. And we started to make that preparation. And I actually had a meeting with the, the golf club uh, manager here, and I said, "Look, you know, you know, have you had cancellations?" And um, I'm not saying he's being blasé, but he, he he wasn't taking it quite as seriously as I was at that point in time. So we we had a good a good lead into it at, at that point. Um, and then through February, the, the trade was just evaporating. Uh, you know, um, we would normally do maybe ninety thousand pounds in in February um, and ninety thousand in March, and, and we just didn't do it. We weren't even close. You know, I think in March we did sixteen thousand. It was pretty pretty dire, and um, we were running out of money rapidly because we'd spent a lot of money on the refurbishment at, at that stage and um, twenty people on the payroll and, and thinking, oh, this is this is not not going to end well at all. You know, so in many ways the actual lockdown was a relief. Um, because it gave us certainty. The, the drag leading up to it was there, there was no certainty mm. as to where we were going with it. So, in many ways, we were glad to to make that uh, that key decision. Um, that then enabled us to try and kick in an insurance claim, but that's another matter. That that's <laughs> that's going nowhere like most insurance claims at the moment. But um, it, it did give us that certainty at that point in time. That's, of course, um, a positive, um, I suppose, uh, Colin. But um, when it comes to, of course, the impact of the uh, the lockdown and all of the uncertainty yeah. and worry yeah. that came about yeah. as a result of that, oh. um, it's really brought sort of the mental health and well-being of people, especially employees, to the fore, hasn't it? Has it been a challenge managing that from your point of view as well? It, it was it was a challenge uh, for me personally. It, um, it was a challenge for the for the employees. Um, we we were you know we'd spent about 150k in the winter so at that time you're completely on your uppers you know most hotels in the highlands are at their lowest ebb 
before the cash starts flowing back in. The employees know that. They can sense that, you know, you're waiting and biding time. And, you know, they, they've been on probably shorter hours in the winter. Then they're looking forward to it this summer where they're going to get more revenue, you know, their, their own personal revenue coming back in uh, from the wages. And they're all geared up for that. And um, so for them, the, the terrible uncertainty. And uh, we we had a staff meeting oh, a couple of days before the lockdown and said, look, you know, we're, we're in a difficult situation here. And um, a lot of them have been with me for a long time, you know, up to 20 years. And you can see it in the faces and, and, you know, there was a lot of hugs and so on and so forth. And so myself and the manager then set about working out how we're going to deal with that. And when we set up a, a weekly email to, to the staff to just let them know exactly what was going on and how, how it was happening. The first three weeks were awful. It, it was just dreadful. Uh, where were we going to get finance from? Uh, the, the Chancellor made the fantastic announcements and so on and so forth, but mm. then getting that into practice was a, a long, drawn-out process. So we, we put in for a, a civil application fairly early on. Um, but, you know, I think we all know that the civils was very, very slow to get moving for any amount of reasons that are way above my pay grade. Um and, and the end result was we, our application was accepted, but it took 10 weeks for it to be processed. Mm. Um, so, we, you know, without funds at that point in time. And um, we're scratching around, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So uh, Philip, my, my son, who, who manages the distillery with, with, with his brother Simon, said, look, let's crowdfund this. And I was very apprehensive. You know, I'm on the wrong side of 60, and doing crowdfunding is, is completely alien to to me. But they had um, a really successful crowdfund campaign to launch the distillery three years ago. Mm. And, and Phil said, look, we've got a fantastic database of really good people who are interested in our whiskey bar, good good golf groups that come on a regular basis. We've got a great goodwill. Let, let's go for it. And I was really apprehensive thinking, you know, all the what-ifs, you know, what will the locals think, what, what if we don't get to our target, you know, and so on and so forth. So we worked it up over Easter weekend. As to what we were going to say, um, we worked up a, a plan. Uh, we, we linked in with uh, crowdfunder.co.uk, who were brilliant. And um, we set a target of £40,000 within 21 days. Um, and crowdfunder.co.uk, they were doing a commission-free uh, for COVID mm. type, type arrangement. So that was great. So we, we recorded the video on, on Easter Monday. Uh, we launched it on Easter Tuesday. And uh, in 48 hours and 15 minutes, we hit the 40 gram target. It was quite incredible. Uh, it was very emotional. The money was just flooding in from all over the world with fantastic comments as far away as Australia, the States, Japan, um, Scandinavia. It was just incredible um, and coming in in massive chunks, but as well as, as locally as well, you know, uh, coming from the local market as well. And we basically gave them a. Um, uh, a voucher for 120 percent of their of their, of their input mm. that they put a thousand pounds in they got a voucher for 1200 pounds to spend and um over the next three weeks that that carried on ticking away quite nicely and then ended up on 70,000 pounds um and the 300 contributors and around about 280 really strong positive emails we got in were the thing that said look Go for it. You know, don't, you know, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this. 
and what confidence it gave us, Scott. Amazing. Mm. Incredibly inspiring uh, stuff for sure, and yeah, a fantastic amazing. response. Uh, amazing, and for the staff, it was great. What you know, what reassurance for them, and and uh, they were all supportive. And so, all right, okay, they've they've now designed a card to go in the rooms, and they all want to sign it. For, 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 so when the crowdfunder arrives and stays, he gets a, a you know a nice card from the staff saying thanks very much for supporting us in this time. Da da da. So that's all been taken care of. Mm, that's really and, positive. And, you know, really chuffed, really chuffed with it. Mm. Um, Thinking, of course, going about. For, um, sorry, Colin. Um, I was just going yeah, to ask yeah. about the uh, the sort of the new normal, just for um, for a moment there. Um, yeah. Thinking about sort of the challenges that that's going to bring with it. Um, hotels, yeah. of course, are going to be reopening. Of course, it's not exactly yeah. sort of clear as to uh, when that's going to be uh, to be happening. With, of course, the social distancing rules relaxed in England, mm. but perhaps mm. not in Scotland. Um, given yeah. the issue of divergence between Westminster and Holyrood, um, is yeah. it yet clear yeah. that you know exactly what's expected of you, and there is a clear route forward at this? point it's becoming clear i would have said a week ago it was as clear as mud um we've got the westminster we've got edinburgh um i do feel there was some political point scoring particularly coming out of edinburgh uh scotland has not that many cases now um at the highlands literally one case i think in the highlands at the moment um so there was this political point point scoring going on. Uh, however, we do know that we can open the garden from, from Monday the 6th. Mm. Uh, so that's happening. We've, we've taken measures for that. And we can open the hotel from the 15th. And amazingly, we're about 80% booked. But the, the, the new protocols, the new norm, as it were, um, are testing us um, because the very name Dornock Castle implies the kind of building that you're in and social distancing is quite difficult. The bar is small, you know, the reception area is small, the restaurant's quite big, the garden's lovely and big, so we've got we've got manoeuvrability there. But um we've had to make some serious changes to the check in process, the mm. billing process, uh the the uh, breakfast and dinner process. The the massive changes for that. And so um, the staff are coming back off furlough in drips and drabs now. Um, it'll be about four or five back in work by um, Monday, and then almost all of them back in by the fifteenth. In fact, we're recruiting. We need about three more staff, three or four more staff, before we get you know really busy. Um, it's going to be very price led, led um, because traditionally we are in the height of the season golf orientated particularly towards America where the you know the key thing there is get on the golf course and you know we can charge them a, a really strong rate for the for the room um, we've had to retarget into the UK uh, UK is a, a, is a lot more price sensitive so we've had to adjust our prices on, on that but at the same time our, our costs are not going to go down because of the new protocols that we're introducing that you know, it's costing more money to, to, to manage those protocols uh, you know, room room cleaning and so on and so forth it's going to be more expensive to, to undertake and, and uh, so you know, we've had to buy quite a lot of new equipment and, and so on and so forth so it's um, it, but it's not about making money this summer it's about just getting through it surviving and getting through to about February March next year that's, that's the only the only thing for us is just to get the head down, do the work. If if we just 
get enough money into the account to survive to next February, that'll be absolutely fine. And then thinking about sort of the longer term future, maybe the sort of next 12 mm. to 18 months, what do you yeah. envision yeah. for yourself, the hotel, the distillery, well, and what do you hope to achieve? Yeah. The, the, from the hotel point of view, um, I think Donut Castle is going to bounce back very, very quickly. Now, other places are saying it's going to take four or five years because listening to various uh, conversations in the industry that um, say Edinburgh um, International Travel Agents are reducing their uh, 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 number of uh, room quarters for next year by around about 40-50%. Um, so we don't know where the American market is going to go um, in, in the next few months. That's a completely different um, you know, scenario over there. Um, but at the moment, the indications for next season, um, we're looking at the moment uh, May, June and July being 30% booked already for next year. Now, a lot of those are carry-forward ones from this year. A mm. lot of our clients have just re- rebooked time over, but we're getting a lot of a lot of golf group inquiries, a lot of whiskey group inquiries for next season. So we're really happy with that, really happy. Um, and, and they'll be back to sort of um, what I call normal, normal summer rates. And... Um, yeah, you know, happy, happy about that. But of course, from a, from a business perspective, whether it's a hotel or any other business, and we've applied for, so we've got our civils loan through and so on. No one wanted that extra debt. Okay, it's interest free for twelve months, but no one wanted that debt, and, and there we are, we're lumbered with extra debt. And, and uh, there is one of the, um, you know, the, the, the key issues going forward is that we're all going to carry that debt, and, and you know, that's. Just the way it has to be, I suppose. So, That's going um, to be the next big challenge for the industry, uh, for sure, and it's yes, going to be interesting to see yeah. just how it adjusts to that. Um, we are just yes. about out of time on the uh, the programme today, unfortunately, Colin, but I have to say it's been not only a real pleasure but also an incredibly insightful and informative experience having you come on and discuss these issues with us. And so considering how uncertain the uh, the future is for, of course, the industry and indeed um the sort of trajectory of coronavirus as well. I think it would be fantastic to have you back on the programme in the next year um, at some point, just to catch up on how things are getting on in the industry at that time and just understand how things are behind the scenes as well. Absolutely, yes. That would be no problem at all, Scott. Yeah. I think that would be wonderful, Colin. Um, I really enjoyed having you uh, join us today. Okay. Um, most yeah. importantly, until we do uh, touch base once again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going Thank on. You because very much. You Although, too. of course, coronavirus is in decline, we're certainly not out of the woods quite with this one yet, for sure. No, I think we're all scared of, 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 a, of a spike and we start bringing tourists back up from you know um, other areas of the country. And, and that is the big fear that there may mm. be a... You know, a, lo- a local lockdown and, and uh, that has a you know an economic impact as well as a, a social impact so yeah I was speaking there to Colin Thompson, owner and co-director of Dornut Castle Hotel in Scotland. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, as well as being an active member of the House of Lords and, of course, former Labour MP and Secretary of State. During his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relish the opportunity to speak with him 
and all of that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who 
may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And of course, um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required 
those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. 
I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, 
except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010. 
through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. 
but I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, 
but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.